Hello, dear listener. Welcome to the Capo Podcast. Tonight, it's going to be an unscripted episode. I didn't intend on doing a podcast tonight, but I noticed it had been a while, and I've got something in my craw that I need to talk about tonight. And instead of just kind of uh, brooding about it, I thought that I would just go completely off the cuff, put it on the podcast, and talk about it, because I think it is important. It is important for all of you Christians out there. This is going to be a podcast episode related to the faith, related to Christianity, to Christian Christendom. And uh, if that's not your cup of tea, you might not want to listen. Or if you're curious, you can still tune in. I don't really care. But I have a lot of things to talk about. Um, as it relates to Christianity and to politics. And these two things are things that are not supposed to touch, but they do, obviously. And a lot of people like to pretend that they don't, and they like to uh, think that they can keep them separate. And before I get way deep into this, I want to start by saying I am not some theologian. I am not an expert on the Bible. Um, I'm not even an expert on my own uh, catechism. I'm a Lutheran, and I don't consider myself as well-read as I should be uh, for a member of the church. I'm more well-read than a lot of people, but I don't consider myself anywhere near a theologian. I, I didn't go to seminary. I wouldn't even put myself in the same category but I do know a lot about politics. I know a lot about history, and that's really what this is about. It's more about politics than theology. And really, it's about people trying to weave their politics into theology and pass off their politics as theology, which I think is one of the greatest threats that the modern church in America and the West and probably the world faces today. And maybe it's maybe it's the threat that it's faced forever and uh, something I feel like I want to talk about tonight. So that's what we're doing tonight. Saddle up. So what is all of this about? Um, what's got me so riled up tonight? I That's what we need to start. Um, this, oh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a week ago, uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, had a bit of a uh, kerfuffle. Uh, a problem arose because Concordia Publishing re- was going to release a new large catechism of Martin Luther with annotations and essays by a few different um, pastors in the Lutheran Church, and these essays were meant to kind of, I don't know, give some light to like the, how the catechism relates to the modern world, and how we can kind of look at certain issues through the lens of our faith, and um, first off, I think that's probably the first problem, but it caused quite a stir because a few of the excerpts from these essays were leaked online 
and immediately caused a ruckus on Twitter. And there were kind of three specific things that people saw in these essays that they didn't really like. The first one was uh, an essay that talked about uh, self-defense and the the use of the sword, we should say, like uh, the use of violence. Um, and that one was on the, the lawful use of lethal force. And there was a line, an excerpt was taken out of that one that said that there's no Christian basis for the right to bear arms. And that angered some people, as you could imagine. Um, the next one was uh, a essay on social justice that talked about homosexuality and gender. And basically the essay said uh, that we Christians are kind of too harsh on the new cultural craze of transgenderism and we've always been too harsh on homosexuality and we kind of turn a blind eye to all the other sexual immorality and just focus on homosexuality and transgenderism. And the third essay that really got people worked up, and this is the one that I really had the most problem with, was an essay called The Ninth and Tenth Commandments, Justice for All, Exemptions for None, by a pastor named John Arthur, Arthur Nunez, or Nunes. I, I'm guessing it's Nunez by the spelling. And in this one, um, it was a it was a essay about theft and covetousness, about the seventh, the ninth, the tenth commandments, and the thing that got everyone worked up was the the thesis basically of the essay, and this is the English teacher speaking here because the part that got everyone worked up was the final sentence of the introductory paragraph which is traditionally the thesis of an essay. And I'm going to read it. It says, A transformative insight of the less-than-obvious perpetrators, the virtuous who possess economic and societal privilege. And the sentence was in reference to people who are breaking the 7th, the ninth, the 10th commandments. And the gist of the essay because this was the one I, I've read all the essays. I read this one twice, actually, because at first it was just that excerpt that was released and everybody threw a fit. And a lot of people I talked to, um, I messaged a couple of the pastors that I've had in the past and that I know and said, hey, is this an issue? And the general consensus right off the bat was, well, we need more context uh, before we can really pass any sort of judgment on what it says, we need to read the whole essay, or at least we need to read what's around that to understand what it's saying. And so, uh, one of the pastors that is, um, comes to my church, we're currently between pastors, we're in the calling process, and so we have a few pastors that are filling in. One of them was kind enough to print out the essays for me and gave me the full essay. And so, I read the full essay, and... I came to the conclusion that there that it really wasn't taken out of context at all and that the uproar from a lot of the people was 
pretty well founded. And the whole podcast that I'm going to do tonight is going to be an explanation of why that is. Because a lot of people feel like everybody's kind of blowing this out of proportion. A lot of people feel like there really isn't anything wrong in these essays. Um, Even the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, initially he released a statement saying he was looking into it and he was asking Concordia to suspend publishing until he could look into it. And then today, he released a statement saying that he had looked into it, and he saw no problems with anything, and he went even further and kind of, I thought, a little too far, and said that a lot of the attacks that were being levied against these essays were unchristian. And um, when it comes to specifically... John Nunez's essay, I just, I don't agree. Um, because the the idea that um, somebody with societal privilege, which is a very kind of leftist Marxist idea, is somehow actively a thief, is not biblical, it is political. And that is a problem, I think. And that's what I want to talk about. And a lot of people don't understand it because a lot of people, especially, you know, people who don't really know a lot about politics, people who don't know a lot about history, um, even people who aren't really plugged in, even people who are very intelligent, very academic you know, theologians who have spent their whole life studying the Gospels might not understand the political implications of what is written in this essay. And I think that's why the president and a lot of people are kind of brushing this off as not a big deal and in line with Scripture when it actually is subverting Scripture. And so that's what I want to talk about, and to get deeper into it, we're going to have to talk about why Marxism, leftism, is not really compatible with the Christian worldview. And so that's where we're going to start. So, first off, Christians in the modern world um, and throughout history, we have this idea that... uh, the late Enlightenment philosophers and the humanism movement of the late Enlightenment and and the scientific revolution are kind of to blame for the loss of faith in Western civilization. But when you blame guys like Kant and Nietzsche and some of the other late, late Enlightenment guys for kind of, I don't know commentating on on this humanist approach and and the you know god not being a factor and these these enlightenment atheists you kind of blame them for this idea when on a large scale the populations of Europe at the time were still very very christian and kind of married to the faith and it really wasn't until 
uh, Marx and Engels came along, and Marxism really started to catch on in Europe and Russia that huge numbers of of the population really started falling away from the church, from the faith. And especially in countries where where Marxism was fully realized, like in Russia, uh, when the Bolsheviks took over, um, they completely gutted the church and ran the church out of Russia, and the you know, the state religion of the Soviet Union was atheism, the same way the state uh, religion of China or North Korea or uh, Vietnam was atheism, because communist countries do not allow uh, religion to, to play any sort of a role. They suppress it at every turn, because Marx viewed religion, he called it the opiate of the masses, and Marxists, in practice, replace religion with the political ideology of the state. And just because in the West we, we don't do that to a full extent doesn't mean that we aren't affected by those same ideas and to blame to blame Nietzsche and Kant and all the late enlightenment and even people even blame like the classical liberal ideas for this this problem that really is the fault of Marx and Engels and the grow of the the growing kind of communist philosophy that that melted into all of the world in the late 1800s, early 1900s, going through the mid-1900s. Because even in America, the, the progressive movement in America, at its core, held many of the same beliefs as Marxism did. And it wasn't until after World War II, when everybody saw all the horrific atrocities that were coming out of the Soviet Union and China, it wasn't until then that Americans really took this anti-communism uh, stance. And I don't know why this isn't taught more in schools, but by that time, communism has had really worked its way into the philosophy of America and the rest of the West. And... Uh, you see it in in uh, famous novels from the time. Um, John Steinbeck is a you know out and out communist. Everything Steinbeck ever wrote had a a giant communist undertone. Um, a lot of the politicians of the time, even the presidents, had very you know socialist and communist policies. Woodrow Wilson, um, FDR. I mean, FDR was almost a, a full-blown communist, to be honest. I mean, he he passed more uh, executive orders than any other president in history. He confiscated all the gold in the United States. Uh, he instituted all kinds of very far-left policies. And I think that people kind of don't understand where the political policies meet up with the 
philosophy, the ideas behind all of it. And the ideas behind this this kind of leftist cultural societal view of history are pretty simple. Um, if you read Marx, and you should, like, even if you even if you aren't somebody who reads a lot, you should read a little bit of Marx to understand Marxism, because the entire idea of uh, the Communist Manifesto, Marxism, is this view of history, the history of the world, being this constant struggle between the haves and the have-nots, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And Marx's thesis is that this is all of human history, is this struggle between people who have things, have the riches, have the wealth, have the means of producing the wealth, and then all of the poor masses that don't have any of that. And Marx's belief was that someday the proletariat will rise up and they will overthrow the bourgeoisie, the the haves, and kill them, seize the means of production, and then the world will be this glorious utopia where uh, you know greed and war are kind of eliminated, and everyone kind of lives in in harmony. That was Marx's idea, and I don't know if you noticed throughout what I just said, but there, there's no mention of God anywhere in there. It's because Marx didn't believe in God. Marx was an atheist. Um, so Marx's view of the world, which really influenced the the kind of leftist view of the world from the late 1800s through the modern world, is a view of history and a view of the world that is devoid of God completely. It discounts God. It, it doesn't even pay any attention to God because it doesn't believe in God. And so if you're someone that prescribes to that view of history and that view of society and that view of the world, you are, you are kind of tying yourself to this fundamental philosophical idea that doesn't even take God into account. And I think that's why a lot of uh, a lot of Christians that kind of end up adopting this philosophy over the generations inevitably end up being agnostic or atheist. And we've seen this time and time and time again uh, with the church. Once you start down that road, it, it it ends up in atheism. And it's a slower trip than what you see in China and Russia and North Korea and Vietnam and a lot of the African countries. But uh, that's, that's where it ends up. I mean, even today, if you look at Russia and Eastern Europe, especially Eastern Europe, the rates of religious belief are wildly low compared to uh, Western Europe, and especially compared to America. Um, The number of people who believe in God in Eastern Europe and Russia is a lot uh, lower than in the Western world. And that's 
a direct result of the communist uh, philosophy. And you can't, but w- once you adopt that as kind of your philosophy, it's not like it goes away in a generation. Um, that sticks around. And so for generation after generation, you have millions of people born, living, and dying in, uh, in atheism, in, in direct kind of refutation of all that is belief and faith in God and the church. And that's why it's such a, it's a, such a dangerous ideology. And that's why I have such a problem with especially the essay written by Nunez. Because even though Nunez is a, a Lutheran pastor, uh, he, has, he uses this language that is language borrowed from academic circles in the United States and in the West that presupposes a sort of Marxist ideology. And when you talk about privilege, when you talk about societal privilege especially, you can't separate that idea from its root in leftist ideology. And because you can't separate that that idea from leftist ideology, you can't pass that idea off as a Christian idea because it presupposes that God doesn't exist. And it presupposes, not only that, it, it breaks commandments. To, to be a leftist, to be a Marxist, and believe in Marxism, right off the bat, you have to accept a belief that anybody who is, is of a higher class, better off than you, more wealthy than you, the people of the higher classes are to be hated, really, or at least envied. Um, and you are to kind of like take their wealth from them. You're to seize the means of production and turn the world into this, you know, this heaven on earth, this utopia. And that idea is not Christian in the least. Um, you can't start from a place of envy and greed looking at your neighbor who is, you know, more well off than you are and thinking, oh, he is well off because he's stolen everything from me because I'm poor, and so I should take what he has and take his status away from him. That is the basis of leftist ideology, and it is fundamentally anti-Christian. And so the problem everybody had with this essay, people who are, who are political and who understand the political language that was used is this thing that Nunez wrote when he said, um, he said this, using the catechism's ethics as illuminated in the commandments on the first, seventh, ninth, and tenth commandments, this essay will explore a range of ways to think about stealing, a transformative insight of the reformer consist in applying God's law prohibiting theft to less than obvious perpetrators. The virtuous 
who possess economic and societal privilege. That is the thesis I was talking about earlier when I introduced this. And that thesis says that simply by being in a class that is considered privileged by the standard of the left, and for those of you who don't understand what that means, and a lot of people don't, I was trying to explain this to my wife earlier, because my wife kind of thought I was overreacting to this, because she's not somebody who who pays attention to politics. She's not somebody that understands what somebody means when they say societal privilege. But what this means to the people who, and make no mistake, people who travel in academic circles, people who are part of academia, part of the intelligentsia, they know what they mean when they say societal privilege. It's not like they're using these phrases offhand. This guy know, knows what he's saying. And what he's saying is people who possess societal privilege are thieves. People who possess societal or economic privilege are covetous thieves that are actively breaking the commandments simply by existing. And that is not Christian. That is not a Christian idea. And explaining that to somebody who has no reference to to these words, to these ideas, to, to the phrases that are used by the academic left, they, they can't grasp it. They don't understand it. And so their immediate response is, well, you're overreacting, or you've read this wrong, or you... My favorite is, oh, you're not smart enough to understand what he means. That one really gets under my skin because the... The assumption is, oh, anybody who is not of my political stripe is way dumber than I am, and they don't really understand all this. When in fact, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, people who have a problem with it, we actually understand it better than most of the people who are on the other side. Because most of the people on the other side of the left don't really understand that the entire idea of their political philosophy is built on this foundation of envy of the classes and the the struggle between the haves and the have-nots. But once you understand that, and once you understand that the people who write these sorts of things also understand what they're writing, you it's hard for you to give them the benefit of the doubt, which is the problem that everybody had. It's the problem I have, and it's the problem a lot of the people that are complaining about this have. And this idea that uh, those who possess societal privilege, which in this context would mean even if you're just some, you know, dirt poor white hick in the middle of Appalachia, or, you know, any, you know, rural red area, you know, poor, you're as poor as anybody in the inner city, but because you are white, you possess this societal privilege that someone else doesn't, which means you are just as guilty as anyone else of 
these active sins of theft, that's a problem. Um, and that is a, it's a theological problem because what the guy is doing, what this, what this pastor is doing, and I don't, I don't want to be too harsh on him because he may not understand completely what he's doing because he may not completely understand, you know, the doctrines of, of leftism. He may be just somebody who who is a theologian, but also has kind of been influenced by the the culture at large, which anybody who's influenced by the culture at large holds these beliefs without really knowing down to the root of them what they mean. So I don't want to be too harsh on the guy, but uh, even if he doesn't understand what he's implying, he is implying it. Um, and he's he's implying that you, you know, blue collar working white American male, you are somehow more guilty. Well, I don't I don't know if he's saying more guilty, but he's saying you are actively guilty of theft and covetousness simply by your existence. And. I don't know. Some people may disagree with me, but I I do not view that as being in line with Christian doctrine. Because to me, it it seems that if you approach the commandments and the commandment says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house or thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or maidservant or manservant or anything that is thy neighbor's Maybe I'm just a dumb hick, but the, to me, that means, hey, you shouldn't envy your neighbor just because your neighbor has more wealth than you do, has more station than you do, has maybe uh, what seems to be a better life than you do. Just because your neighbor has that, you should not envy or covet your neighbor because of that. I mean, that's just common sense to me, and that seems to be to me, what the commandment says. When the commandment says, thou shalt not steal, to me, that says you shouldn't steal. It doesn't say you shouldn't steal unless that person has economic or societal privilege. Then it would be okay to uh, vote for policies that would take their wealth away from them because that wouldn't really be stealing if the government's taking it from them and you voted for it and you are supporting it and you are kind of holding that up. You're not really guilty of that because, after all, you're just voting for the people with guns to go take their money from them. You're not actually doing it yourself. See, to me, that seems like uh, some some cowardly bullshit. But... See, I was going to try to not get too off color, but uh, but that's how I feel. And to kind of go over this again, the the argument was, well, you took him out of context. You only read that one little part, and you didn't read the rest of it. And I read the whole thing. I read the whole essay, and first off... It's really hard to take the thesis of an entire essay out of context. The thesis of the essay is the idea, 
it is the fundamental point of the essay. It is what the essay is fundamentally about. You can't take the thesis out of context. And that is the thesis of the guy's essay. And so, you know, get out of here with that. It's not taking it out of context to point out that the thesis is fundamentally anti-Christian. It's not just not Christian, it's anti-Christian. Because it's telling you, it's not only saying that it's, you know, that it's saying that that guy over there, he's envious and he's covetous where I am not. Whereas the actual Christian doctrine says you should guard yourself against envy and against covetousness. Um, so that's where that one stands. That was the essay that I had the most problem with. A lot of other people had more... It seems like the one that really got people going was the essay by Joel Bierman, The Fifth Commandment Lawful Lethal Force, because he had a he had a bit in there, an excerpt that said that there's really no Christian basis for the right to bear arms, which... Again, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I don't agree. He said that the the Christian view was like the only the only time that you would be allowed to use any sort of lethal force would be if you were sanctioned uh, by some lawful government agency. It, it's also kind of tilted into leftist political thought and it's kind of using using Christian theology to kind of tell you well you should adopt this political idea because I think it is more theological but I will say that in that one it's not his thesis that's not that's not what he's saying broadly in the entire essay so I'm not going to be as harsh on him but that that excerpt alone is kind of uh i don't know i i didn't really like it he does put a thing at the end um where he says it should be apparent that this is a conclusion reached on the basis of theological considerations and he has something about how the second amendment of the united states constitution articulates this right yada 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 but i think that's kind of a cop out um saying well as a Christian, you aren't really authorized to use any sort of lethal force, but the U.S. Constitution gives you the Second Amendment right. Um, I I don't really prescribe to that. I don't think uh, I don't think that God is going to hold it against you if somebody comes and kicks your door in in the middle of the night and you use lethal force against them so that they don't kill you and your wife and your child. Um, that is, I I don't know, that's just fundamental common sense to me. The idea that as a Christian man who is who is supposed to protect and love your family, the idea that you would be somehow required to just stand aside if somebody decided to come into your house and rape your wife and kill your children uh or kill you or just you know break your door down and kill you i i don't i don't prescribe to that at all i think that is a huge pile of horseshit but uh 
I digress. I don't think that Bierman's essay is as as damning as Nunez's. Um, I don't think that's his whole argument, and I think that that one was. I wouldn't say it was completely taken out of context, but that one might be a little bit uh, overblown as far as the the uproar to that one. The third essay that everybody seemed to to get everybody in an uproar had to do with, uh, it was called The Commandments and Social Justice by Leopold A. Sanchez. And uh, right off the bat, the reason that people probably got upset about this one is, again, it's using this leftist political language in the title of the essay. Social justice is a is a phrase that is only used by the academic left and it has a it has certain connotations and it has certain meaning that is lost on people who don't really understand the academic left so to the layperson who doesn't really get it they they read social justice and they just read it as what it is and they don't understand that the the leftist ideology this this postmodernist ideology has this thing where they decide new definitions of words and and words mean something to them that they may not mean just in their original form and that is i i don't know look around you and you'll see that i mean the little buzzwords that leftist academics use as kind of wink nods it's it's almost like they're they're in the I don't know, the Freemasons, and it's the secret handshake. If you say enough of the right words in the right order, somebody will know that you are, uh, you know, that you're okay. You, you're part of the, the good guys, the social justice warriors. If you use phrases like social justice and, and white privilege and cis white, you know, cisgender this and all that crap. Um, so that probably was not a good start for this essay and that's why people got upset with it. But, uh, again, with that one, Sanchez's essay, kind of like, uh, Bierman's, I don't find it as problematic as Nunez's because the, the general thesis of his essay is also not out of line with, with Christian thinking. Um, it, it basically says, it talks about homosexuality and uh, this kind of new gender ideology. And, and some of the arguments he makes are, are not good arguments. There, There's something along the lines of, well, for a really long time, the church has kind of given a free pass to adultery and, and uh, divorce and other forms, you know, premarital sex, we've kind of turned a blind eye to all this, and we're really hard on homosexuals and transsexuals, but we give everybody else a pass. And that's kind of his general idea, and the essay is saying, well, we really shouldn't do that. And I don't technically agree with that, really, but he's not, and I don't view him as much as an error as Nunez. I will say that this idea that like Christianity has kind of taken a really soft tact with divorce and uh, 
adultery and premarital sex. That's true. Um, and honestly, like it's the people who are more fundamental, more traditional, and more conservative who are way harsher on those things than people who are on the left. So the idea that like, well, you can't really talk because you you're really soft on divorce and and premarital sex, so you can't really say anything against homosexuality. It's like, well, really? Because we're kind of the ones who are banging the drums on why all this other stuff is is bad and you shouldn't do it. So we're also banging the drums hard against homosexuality and and transgenderism. You're you guys are the ones who have taken this really lenient view of all the rest of it for years and years and years. Um, it's not really the traditional kind of conservative ones who have. And on top of that, even if they do, um, there's this this thing that's going on in modern Christ- Christianity of, well, you're just Jesus just wants you to love everybody, and and that's true. But that's been construed as, well, Jesus would really want you to affirm everyone in their sin. So if you're, you know, if your brother's gay or if your cousin's gay or if so-and-so's decided that they're the other gender, you're really not supposed to say anything because that's not very nice. And you should probably just be happy for them and affirm them and tell them it's okay. That's not Christian. (laughs) You don't tell like, uh, you know, you don't tell your kids, hey, you know what, go off to college, you know, bang as many people as you want, have a bunch of promiscuous sex. It's, you know, that's fine. Just do all that. It's really good. No, no true fundamental Christian parent is telling their child, hey, it's no big deal if you go have sex with a whole bunch of people. Hey, it's no big deal if you get a divorce. It really doesn't matter. Nobody's saying that. So to turn around and say, well, you really need to just affirm everybody who's decided they're going to, they're going to, you know, live in sin. They're going to continue homosexual relations, uh, and you can't say anything against it. That's not a very Christian idea either. So overall, um, I think this is a, a problem in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there's already a very, you know, progressive leftist sect of the Lutheran Church. Uh, The ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, is already a thing. And my opinion on it is, if there are a whole bunch of people in the Missouri Synod that would really rather be ELCA Lutherans, then they should go be ELCA Lutherans. Um, I don't see why this, the LCMS and the ELCA broke up back in the sixties or seventies during, you know, the first round of all this crazy leftist nonsense when a whole bunch of people in the Lutheran church decided that they were, they were more concerned with being culturally leftist than they were being actually Lutheran. And they broke off from the church and they created the ELCA Lutheran Church because they wanted to have female pastors and they wanted to be way more lenient on all this stuff and they didn't want to be as traditional and hard-nosed. 
And my view of it is if that's if that's what these people want, and if that's what the, the view of people in the in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, if that's what you want, go to the ELCA. Go to the Methodist Church. Uh, go be an Episcopalian. Like I don't care if that's if that's what you've decided. My issue is there's not very many traditional conservative Christian denominations anymore. You have the LCMS Church, apparently up until recently. Uh, there's another Lutheran uh, Synod that's pretty conservative. I think it's the Wisconsin Synod is pretty conservative. You have uh, your kind of, there's a lot of hard-nosed traditional Catholics. Uh, there are some very conservative Southern Baptist, and that's about it. Everyone else, every other denomination as a whole, as a collective, has decided to buy into the ways of the world, you know, bow to the the culture of the times, become more leftist, become more progressive, become more quote unquote inclusive, uh, and they do so to their own detriment. They keep diluting the faith, they keep moving further away from the teachings of the Bible, and they're constantly just trying to, I don't know, my biggest problem is that they don't admit it. They they move further away from the teachings of the Bible, but the whole time their their biggest goal seems to be doing mental gymnastics and twisting what the Bible says to fit their political ideas. And this has been going on probably since the beginning of time. It's one of the oldest problems in, in humanity, for that matter. But, uh, I don't know, it goes all the way back to the garden. When, when the snake said to Eve, uh, you don't really need God. You can be like God if you eat the fruit. Uh, humanity just struggles with that on a, on a societal scale forever and ever, and we always will. Um, and I, I wish more people would see it, I guess. Um, people, uh, have this tendency to want to justify themselves and justify their sin. And so instead of admitting what they are, admitting who they are, ad- admitting what they're doing, instead they try to twist themselves into knots and and proclaim their own righteousness. And that's the danger here. And I, I don't think the, don't get me wrong, I don't think the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church is on the level with all that other stuff yet. But as we've seen over the past 40, 50 years, especially over the past 10 years, this idea that the slippery slope analogy isn't true is just that's been blown up. The the slippery slope is absolutely true. All the things that the old kind of hard-nosed Christian fundamentalist and traditional people, all the things that they were griping about and warning everybody about back in the 80s and 90s, all that shit has come true. Um the the idea that like, well, you know, Gays don't want to be treated any different. They want to be just like you. We just want to be left alone and we just leave us alone. Well, that's not true. 
Um, it's, it's just not. You don't have to be just left alone. You want everybody else to affirm that. And if they won't, you want to destroy them. You want to sue them. That baker up in Colorado has been embroiled in lawsuits for 10 years because he just didn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding. He won that lawsuit, but as soon, like the day after he got out of court for that lawsuit, someone else sued him because he wouldn't make a transgender cake for a transgender reveal party. And now that one's going through the courts. You don't just want to be left alone. You are demanding that everybody else accept and affirm everything about you. And if they won't, you want to punish them politically, societally, financially. That's what's going on. And we're getting to the point now where look at look at the drag show problem. I mean, all of a sudden, drag shows for kids have become this sort of weird, gross, secular religious activity for the left. And we're getting to the point where pedophilia is becoming more and more mainstream where it's it's not as bad. We're we're not even calling them pedophiles anymore. We're we're calling them minor attracted persons and we're supposed to kind of accept that and affirm that. And if you don't think that in the next ten years we're just gonna slide further down the slippery slope I don't know what to tell you. If you can't look at the past 10 years and see where we started and where we are now, if you go back to further than 10 years ago, you go back to Obama in 2008. Obama was against gay marriage in 2008. When he ran for president, he said he was for traditional marriage. He didn't agree with gay marriage. Here we are, 2023, not that long you know, not that far from 2008, and you'd be hard pressed to find a single conservative mainstream person that will openly say they are they are not for homosexual marriage. So the slippery slope is real, and uh, those of us who see it and who see where all of this could lead are sounding the alarm bells, and everybody else who really hasn't been paying attention or doesn't care or doesn't really want to see it is, you know, wagging their fingers at us. And my biggest problem with this whole Lutheran Church controversy is the president of the Lutheran Church who I'm, I've always respected and liked hearing his stuff. He's, he seems to be a good guy. He released a statement today um, on this whole controversy and said that after review, he didn't see anything wrong with it. And um, there was like, he had one sentence in there that was like, oh, maybe some of the phrasing could have been done better. And then he went right in to say uh, he was condemning everybody who had come out against this as unchristian. And I mean, that that's what kind of drove this whole podcast. That's, that's, that's disgusting to see from from the Lutheran Church. Um, it, it is it's nothing it's nothing short of a bending of the knee to the cultural woke left because the church knows that they're the majority now 
and they know if they don't bend the cultural knee, they're going to get all this backlash from the woke left. And so it's easier to bend the knee than it is to fight. And that seems to be the the position that the president of the LCMS has taken. He would rather bend over and take it from the cultural left than actually stand up for the faith. And I'm to the point where that doesn't surprise me anymore. Every single institution, every politician, everybody in power, nobody wants to stand up and fight. Everybody would rather just bend over and take it because they know they're outnumbered and they know that they're going to catch a bunch of flack if they don't and everybody in the media is going to call them an evil bastard and nobody has the balls anymore to to actually stand up for anything against the ruling cultural government we're going to just keep uh, we're going to keep rendering everything unto caesar uh, because we think apparently now we believe that everything is Caesar's because everybody who, who quotes that verse, they like to say, well, you know, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And they never finish that verse. The second half of that verse is render unto God the, thing, the things that are God's. And uh, I guess as a society, as a culture, we've decided that uh, everything is Caesar's and nothing is God's. And uh, it's really uh, it's really hard to see because outside of small kind of networks of people who who hold similar beliefs, I don't see a I don't see a larger institution that that can stand up to it, and they don't seem to be willing to. And uh, if if that's the case then we're we're finished. Uh we're we're going to be finished as a church, we're going to be finished as a culture, and in 20, 30, 50 years we'll just look like Eastern Europe. We'll look like the former Soviet Union where Christianity is largely dead and the church that does remain is a is a shell of what it was and it'll only be made up of those you know the the offspring of people who are more traditional, more fundamentalist, and they'll be, you know, pariahs and laughed at in their communities because they'll be so laughably outnumbered that it it won't matter anymore. And uh, unless an institution with some power decides to find its freaking balls and stand up to this. Uh, that's where we're headed, y'all. So I guess my message to you is you, you can't rely on institutions to to do the work anymore. You don't get to outsource your education to the government school system anymore. And it's becoming more and more clear that you don't get to outsource your religious, your kids and your family's religious education to the church anymore. Uh, maybe we need to go back to, uh, what the catechism actually says. I mean, it opens up each kind of section with, this is to be taught, you know, the, the father of the household on how to instruct his, his household. It's to be taught to your household by 
the the father, the head of the household. And that's where we're headed back to. That's what you need to come to terms with. That's the uh, that's the occasion that you're going to have to rise to if you want to if you want to preserve the the faith of your family and of your lineage. You're going to have to take some more responsibility. And on a larger sense, when it comes to everything else, education of your children, uh, 10, 20 years from now, you want to send your kid to the government school system, you're a fool if you do, because it's only going to get worse. You need to focus on that. You're going to have to educate your child religiously. You're going to have to educate your child academically. Um, You're going to need to build yourself a network of people you can trust because uh, we're not in the majority. And there's nothing that I can see in the in the future that that looks like we're going to become the majority, uh, unless there's some sort of earth-shattering cultural revolution in in our you know coming our way. And uh, I don't know. I don't see that on the horizon. So this isn't a it isn't to make you, you know, beat you down or make you despair. It's to fire you up, become become that person for your family and your community. Uh, become that person for your family. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there. That's about an hour. That's about all I have to say, I think. And uh, I'll catch you next time on the Capo Podcast. Thanks for your time. Yeah.